Okay, so today's forum um, is titled Hastening Toward Goliath on campus. And not too long ago in Syracuse, we were, I think in a Bible class lessons, we were, uh, you know, we had the story of, uh, of David and Goliath. And I saw something in this story of David and Goliath that I'd never seen before. I'm just dense. You guys have probably seen it already. But if you read the story of David and Goliath, the Bible says that David picked up his five stones. He had this interaction with Goliath about, you know, you come to me with a sword and a spear, but I come to you in the name of the Lord God. And Goliath gets mad and starts taking off to David. And the Bible says David hastened toward Goliath. And I don't know, that just really impressed me that in the face of a challenge like this, David's attitude was such that he wasn't backing away from this battle. He was going forward to take on this dude. And I had to think about my own life, my own experience at college, at the university. Yeah, I'm, I'm at the university now for the second time. Been at the university for 10 years. Most people finish up in four, it took me 10. I'm not done yet. And so I'm working on it, all right? Um, but I realized from this that, you know what, my whole approach toward my studies and my life as a student, I realized now was, should have been different. And, and I'm hoping for those of you, I, I realize this forum might not be for everybody. I don't know how many of you are going to study or what your life plans are, what you're doing. But, you know, life changes. Many of you, even if you're not going to study right now or three years from now, you might study. You never know how the turns life takes. And, and I want to uh, look at our, our lives on campus in somewhat of a different way from how we might have uh, looked at this before. This is my objective in the forum, to challenge Christian youth to consider their educational development as a time of focused service for the Lord. We talk about missions, missionaries, people going into the world and doing, uh, doing the Lord's work. At, but, you know, what about you? I mean, do you have to go to the far corners of the earth to, the earth, to really be a missionary for the Lord? No. Okay. On the other hand, having said that, how many of us seriously approach our lives as if we are missionaries for the Lord? I mean, Seriously. Not like a thought in the back of our mind. But I mean, we're really, really serious about the way that we approach this. And I realized that, you know, my time at the university might be a lot like yours, so let's talk about it a little bit. This is basically what I'm going to talk about. I would like to speak about the biblical model of David engaging his world around him. Um, uh, you know, some questions about what your approach is to your personal professional training, whatever that is. I, I want to give somewhat of a perspective of what is going on in universities. I mean, the higher level of thought in what's happening at universities and about some of the new reali realities of campus life. And maybe even more importantly, the huge advantage and opportunity one has on campus for the Lord. And uh, then somewhat of a modest proposal of how I think is a way that we can move forward. And let's see what you guys think about this. Um, if we were look at 1 Samuel 17 and look at the story of David, I've just picked out 
a few, uh, three points in here that I would like to bring to your attention. First of all was the fact that David was outraged at God being defied and insulted by Goliath. I mean, this is one of the times in the Bible where we see a, a really a righteous indignation, partially because of the youth and the innocence, I think, of, of young David. But when he heard these things being said about God and about Israel, it really made him mad. It really made him mad and caused him to act. And I wonder how many of us hear things in our world that are going on around us about you know what people are saying about God, and we respond the same way that it makes us it makes us mad, or we you know somewhat indifferent to what's going on. Two, you know, David said, ooh, get the right one. David said quite clearly in verse 45 of this chapter that he is acting on the Lord's behalf and in the Lord's name. You know, I mean, he was not he was not doing anything for himself in this. He had no selfish motives. His purpose for taking on this challenge was purely on the Lord's behalf. And ultimately, he said in the end that what should come out of this day's battle was that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. I mean, that is what was on his heart. You know, that what was going to happen that day on the battlefield would leave a legacy and a message for all the people that God is really God. And when I looked at these things, I say, man, you know, what, what more appropriate attitudes um, for us to have in our lives when we're... Uh, when we're seeking our professional training. So this is the question, and I'm you know, no monkey business today, I'm gonna to be right in your face. This is the question. Why would you settle for selfishly gaining professional skills when you could be active in Jesus service while you're being trained? You know, I mean I'm gonna get right into your mind and get right at your motives and ask you why are you there? Why are you doing what you're doing? Is it is it really you know, for your, own, for your own motives, or is your approach to this realizing that God is really going to use this time in your life for his purposes and in his, his service? Um, so some questions, I mean, what is your approach to your education? It doesn't even necessarily matter what it is. It might be at the university, that's what I'm focusing on today, maybe not, but why are you doing what you're doing? I mean, are you there, you know, just because it's something you have to do to get a job? I mean, is that your motiv motivation for being there? It's just that? I'm there to get a job. I've got to waste four years of my life, spend a lot of money to get some piece of paper at the end because that gives me the right to go and get a job. I mean, if that happens to be your attitude, grow up, hello, four of the best years of your life that God could use, and that is you know, the way we're approaching this. For, I don't know, for some, maybe it's four years of fun, you know, before you got to hunker down. People know you get a job, you know, life gets a little bit serious, but this is a time where, where you can have some fun. I don't know, for some people, they might be concerned that this is potentially a time of fear because they're being concerned that they're going to be influenced with bad things when they get on this campus. And hey, you know, God, this is something I have to be worried about now as I, as I pursue my studies. For some people, it's maybe, I don't know, a time of just focusing on their own performance. I'm going to do as, you know, as good as I can. Be able to you know, lay in those good grades. Get that good job. For some others, they might say, hey, look, this is the time in my life. I'm single, not married yet. 
this is you know, this time if you can live it up, if you can have fun, you may as well do it. You'll make hay while the sun shines. This is it. Um, you know, maybe I'm totally off. I'm hoping that for many, this is maybe not the approach that you have. But if the shoe happens to fit, you know, I'm asking you today to rethink that. That's what it's basically all about. Um, the point is, Jesus wants you. Jesus wants you. For some of you, I, I mean, listen to how the Spirit might be speaking. To consider this time as a focused time of being in His service. These four years or five years or whatever that you're going to spend at the university is not a time in your life that you just got to get through. This is the prime time in your life where Jesus is actually going to lay some very important groundwork for your future development as Christians. To challenge those in this environment. And there's a lot of challenging that needs to be done. There's a bad way to challenge. There's a good way to challenge. But are you even going to get to the point where you can actually be challenging your environment instead of having your environment challenge you? That's the question. How do you grow up so that you can get beyond feeling threatened by this and actually you were at the point in you know, playing a serious role in what's going on there? You know, I mean, are we really concerned there in promoting his, this should be a big age, sorry, Jesus' interests? I mean, do you really view that that's the reason why you're there? And, it, so, you know, maybe it's vocational training. Maybe it's whatever you're doing. The point is, what's in your heart, man? Are you there for him? Or is there something else that's doing this? I, I want to, you know, clearly understand where the battle lines are being drawn in this environment, giving a little bit of time. I'll, I'll explain that. And, you know, Jesus wants you to gain a larger view of his mission, not only for your life, not only for your churches, but in the grander scheme of how he is causing the history of this world to develop. And the question is, are you a player or are you not a player? Am I a player or am I not a player? I, I did a little bit of research here that I, I just want to focus your attention on some of the realities of the demographics of university life. And actually, you know, even second, you know, post-secondary or secondary training in our junior high schools and high schools. This is how it shakes out from the academic year 2000-2001. There are 6.3 million teachers who are educating about 50 million students in America. Now, the thing that might, I don't know, strike some people, you know, is the fact that it's, you know, it's only something like 1% or something like that that are the students that are educating all these, these kids, okay? I think that's an important fact. Look over here, though, in post-secondary training, which means university training, that there were approximately 15 million university students of whom 1 million professors are doing the training of these people. Tomorrow's leaders, tomorrow's elite, tomorrow's thinkers in all of America are being trained by one million people. There are 240 million people in America, about, and we have entrusted, how did it ever get this way? That we actually entrusted a mere one million out of 240 being responsible for the intellectual development and professional training of everybody in America at this point. So there is a huge responsibility that's being put on these people right over here. 
And the question is, are they doing a good job? Are they not doing a good job? And where actually is our role in making a con contribution to their work that they ought to be doing? I, I want to give you a little bit of a perspective. It, it was very interesting for me to look into this, to see where we have come from in America. Within 40 years after the Pilgrims landed on Plymouth Rock in Massachusetts, the first university was started in New England. This is not the first one. The first university was William and Mary, Williamsburg, Virginia. Okay, I think that dates back to like the 1620s or something like that. This is 1636. But, you know, the first university in America. I want to read to you about the mandate of why Harvard was started. The original mandate says, in, in part of its verbiage, to train, quote, a learned clergy and a lettered people. You're going to find a common theme in many of these things that when universities first started, it was for the purpose of sending people into the ministry. Further on, if you read in the charter, from the original charter, it says, everyone shall consider the main end of his life and study to know Jesus Christ, sorry, is it, this is eternal life. The charter of Harvard University. That is the main goal of what the buns happened. The one interesting little fact you might be, uh, catch your attention, that it was actually 100 years before the first professor at Harvard was not a minister. For 100 years, only ministers we're teaching professors at Harvard. Harvard lost its ver fervor for faith, at least as perceived by the people at Yale. And I'm not sure exactly what the year was that Yale was founded, but that was clearly its purpose, because they didn't think Harvard was doing a good job. Okay, One interesting thing here from one of the first presidents of Harvard University at Convocation 1754, Thomas Clapp, by name, that the early purpose of the college was to be considered a society of ministers. For lifting up persons for the work of the ministry. Sorry, left out a word here. That the purpose of this university was to be considered a society of people who were going to train others for the purpose of ministry. Well, you all know for sure that that is not exactly what has happened today, but a few other facts here of these founding institutions of the first 119 universities that were founded in America, 104 of them were started from a Christian base. What that means is they started it to train people for ministry, including universities such as Princeton, Dartmouth, and Columbia. Another interesting little fact here, shortly before the Civil War, 1855, there were 40,000 graduates from all American universities, of which 10,000 of them went into ministry. 25%, that's not that long ago, 150 years ago, right? 25% of all people saw the end product of their studies going into ministry in some shape or form. Um, I hope you can see that there is actually quite a rich heritage that these universities have come from, but things have changed. Okay? 
some of the current trends of thought, you know, a, a total deterioration of teaching any values at universities whatsoever. They're trying to find a way in which higher thinking is communicated in value neutral. Two, that the leaders in the educational system are religiously uncommitted. That is very different from the people that attend universities. You know, polls have found out that actually students attending and the parents of students attending are actually religiously committed in some ways, but those who are training them are not religiously committed. They've adopted this new, this new myth of religious neutrality, meaning that you can't mix religion in any of these studies. Okay, and you know, Brother Ron spoke about that a little bit last night about this separation of church and state, which I'm just going to passively talk about. It's part of this, this myth of religious neutrality that says that you know, religion shouldn't play a role, any kind of role in higher education. Incorrect interpretation of separation of church and state. And right now, we have basically an anti religious basis for education. Okay, I mean, that is what it looks like an anti religious. So, you know, in many cases, if you raise things that have something to do with faith or religion, um, you're not going to be all that popular, but just expect it. But this has been being used in a very, very clever way by these people who were at the top, those one million. This happened to be from a report from the University of Texas that actually, after they looked into academic freedoms at the university, had to make a statement where they forbade professors from using their finely honed cognitive skills to shake up students' beliefs. You guys are smarter than them. You know how to twist arguments right around them. You can't use this in such a way that it's going to shake up the uh, fundamental morals or, quote, to lead them to question their values. Okay, so I mean, this is, but look, we all know this, this is what's going on, okay? Doesn't matter what the university says. The professors are doing that. Maybe not consciously, maybe subconsciously, but they clearly are presenting information in such a way that is going to cause people to question their values. Question for you, am I against values being questioned? No way. I am for values being questioned. Values should, you should know what you believe and why you believe it. You should know more than just because you're part of a, of a tightly knit spiritual group that has certain values. That is not a sufficient enough basis for why you believe. If you're going to try to stand out in this world and be a player and make a mark, I mean, there have to be reasons, fundamental reasons, for why you believe what you believe. And the question is, do we really know what those reasons are, and do we feel comfortable in communicating those to others? A few things that the news is saying about our university systems. These are a little bit old. Sorry they're dated, but I could find them relatively easily. These, both of these from US News and World Report, November 1980. The first one by the president of John Hopkins University, where he says, the failure to rally around a set of values means that universities are turning out a potentially highly, potentially highly skilled barbarians. President John Hopkins. Newest U.S. News and World Report, on the other hand, in a, a later article by this David Richardson, I'm not sure who he is, but he wrote an article here on Marxism in the classroom. On the other hand, while anti-religious sentiments abound in the university, there were, as of 1982, about 12,000 Marxists that were free to teach in state universities. The idea here is that these are state universities, so these people are totally being funded by tax, uh, tax dollars. That was the idea behind this statement. 
12,000 Marxists. Again, do I believe Marxists should not be at the university? Personally, I, I believe that it's fine for them to be there. But there's got to be other people there that are mixing it up with these guys about what they believe to disseminate a different perspective of the world. <clears throat> now, you know, I mean, what prevents us from engaging? I mean, really seriously engaging in university life, what's going on there? Well, you know, for some people, you know, they feel themselves actually unprepared for campus life and for just the social challenges that are there. You know, you know, they might need a little bit protective, and it's going to be a big change when you get into it. And coping with those changes um, doesn't really allow us to really focus on what the main mission is there. Um, you know, for some of us, you feel yourself a minority when you're there. So how can you really build up any momentum when you are such a minority? You're being snow, you know, snow blown by everybody else that's around you. You know, we might actually feel that we're outgunned. This is a big deal with professors. They think, oh, that guy knows so much more than I do. How can I mix it up with this guy? Because he's going to make mincemeat out of me. First couple times he might. But let me tell you something. You know what? He puts his pants on in the morning just like you do. Okay? He learned how to spin arguments just like you can learn how to make arguments. It's just a matter of experience. It's not because the guy is you know, particularly brighter. It's one thing I've had to learn in universities, even, even you know, doing academic research, I mean, you know, doctoral research that's there. You think that people are really, really smart, and when you get into it, you, you find out that, you know what, they're not as smart as they lead you to believe that they are. When you really get into what's going on, you find out that they don't have their acts together. And there's a lot of things, that, you know, arguments that they're making that are not sound, that are not good arguments, but you haven't gotten to the point yet of being able to sniff out where the weak links in this argument, and then suddenly hits you one day, wait a minute here, fella, what are you trying to tell me? Takes a while to find these things out, okay? Sometimes, you know, we actually feel, and this is something I want to work on, we feel that intellectually we're actually second rate. Intellectually, we're just not as good as these guys. And we can't really keep up with them. We can't debate with them on something like equal terms. We always you know, view ourselves as being somewhat at a, at a real disadvantage. And again, that, that is the case early on, but it doesn't need to be that, that case. Something I, I lifted here from a, a book by, by Peter Kraft from uh, Boston University, like this guy. He wrote an interesting book there called The Snakebite Letters. Has anybody ever heard of The Screw Tape Letters by C.S. Lewis? When you read the screw tape letters, this is sort of our generation's view of the screw tape letters. It's called the snake bite letters. Cool name. And he mentions one thing in this book about how we have a, a wrong paradigm that means a wrong value system. The world around us is teaching us that there is an elitism of people and an egalitarianism of ideas. That means that people are special and all ideas are the same. There are some people that are special, that are better than others in our community, but all ideas are the same. The reality in the world is totally the opposite, okay? That there is a value system. To, some ideas are just better than other ideas. On the other hand, when it comes to people, there's no elitism of people. We all stand before God as absolute equals. Precious in God's sight, all people are special. Okay, that's not to demean people, but to say that there is a difference in the ideas, and we have to view each other as being more equal in interacting with all of them. Again, they put their pants on in the morning just like you do. So what are some common questions that people get stuck on? You know, they, they get, you know, challenged with when they're there. 
I have a list here of some that people talk about, you know, when they're asked the question, well, how do we really know that God exists? I mean, how do you answer that question in a rational way? You know, why should we trust the Bible? You know, why should we interpret the Bible literally? How can one God be three? You know, are the Bible and science in conflict? You know, why is there evil and suffering? You know, do Christians condemn other people to hell who haven't heard about Jesus? The list could go on and on, right? I, I could make a lot longer list. But for many of us, these are the type of questions that challenge us, and we're actually looking for help to answer. And, and my experience is that more often than not, usually we don't get beyond these questions. We're working this out in our own heart, and maybe we can help a couple of friends, but we really haven't worked our way through these things to master the answers to these questions and grow up and move on to the next step of engaging in this, uh, in this discussion. You know, how do you get beyond the basics, though, with these questions? A few ideas that I want to throw at you. You know, there has to be a sincere desire in our hearts that we really want to grow up and join the harvest. I mean, are we going to be satisfied to just be stuck with the fundamental questions, not master them, get on to the next stage so that you can play a more serious role and, and, and shoulder more serious responsibility in your sphere of influence? You know, it requires a sense of developing a sense of mission, you know, for where you are right now. The truth is, I mean, I know, I, I mean, most of us don't view ourselves as being missionaries. We ask, we believe that there's an elitism of people, that there's some among us who are the special, who are called to be missionaries. But we really don't accept, accept the fact that we're the missionaries. You're the missionary, and I'm going to make a really, want to bring things to your attention right now. Um, in, in raising some of these questions that are usually the ones that we get stuck on, the reality is, is if you look at the list, there's only 25 or 30 questions that are, nor that are the big ones. And the thing that I want to communicate to you is the answers are there to those questions. They've been worked out. Integrated answers that you can hold your head high and, in a sense, be proud of, humbly proud. But you can be confident that those answers are good answers to those questions. And my point is, Learn the answers to the 25 questions. Master those things so that you're ready day, night, anytime when somebody raises this stuff. You know the arguments. You know the things you have to present. And just do it. Just learn it. Make it part of your working academic knowledge so that you can move on to the next step. Learn what it means about the truth of biblical answers. I mean, the real truth of biblical answers, the truths that the Bible gives are really the solutions that are there. And, and to be able to see that all the answers that other people give, they might mean well in giving these answers, but in the end, they are not the fundamental solutions to the problem. It's only Christianity that really offers integrated, complete, wholesome solutions to the problems. I'm sorry, I, we're not going to have time to go through these verses, but I've, you know, where applicable, I've put these things in. And, and the, uh, the last thing is that you, know, you have to decide, are you going to be a player in the marketplace of ideas? I mean, are you going to make the dust, or are you going to be left in the dust? I mean, that's basically the choice that you have. You know, are we going to grow up spiritually so that we can make a contribution in the marketplace of ideas? Or are we going to be complacent and are we going to be content you know, to really just be second-rate players and not have anything to say about this? And, uh, you know, I mean, I hope I'm not being too awful forceful at this, but obviously I, I strongly want to encourage you to take the next step. 
Be willing to be a player in the marketplace of ideas. Learn what it takes to be active in that community. There, there's a unique opportunity that we have at the university that I want to bring to your attention that in some ways I think is more profound even than our missionaries that are going elsewhere in the world. The first is, is that the universities have become the architect of a new society. This is the, the central institution that our culture has rested as being the architect of tomorrow's leaders, tomorrow's opinion leaders, tomorrow's directors, tomorrow's thinkers. This is the place where it all happens. And I mean, we, especially in North America, have a unique opportunity to play a role in this environment where it's all going on. You know, mentioned here that the university is the central clearinghouse for tomorrow's leaders. So not only can you actually engage in the discussions, but this is the place where lifelong friendships are built. How do you know that the person you meet and become friends with is not going to be the next chairman of GE? How do you know that this girl that's sitting in your sociology class is not one day going to become the next Secretary of State? I mean, how do you know that? Don't underestimate the people that you're interacting with and the, and the importance that I feel of, of developing friendships with people that are, that, are, that are around you because the Lord will also use those friendships. A really important fact that I want to draw your attention to is why should you go into all the world when all the world is coming to you? I mean, do you know how many foreign students are at universities? And I mean, let's think about this for a minute. Who are these people? These foreign students that are here, we complain about them, we hate their accents, you know, all the TAs that are teaching this stuff. Why do, this is the reality. These people are the cream of the cream in their cultures that are being sent to North America to get educated. The overwhelming majority of them, what's going to happen? They will go back to their cultures. They will be the government. They will be the scientists. They will be the people that are leading those societies. And they are right here at our doorstep. And, and there, is a, there is an opportunity for a tremendous ministry amongst graduate students. They come here without their families. They're lonely. They don't know how to make friends. They're learning things about the American culture. They don't know anything about the idioms. They need help with learning English. And if only somebody would be compassionate on them to actually say, you know what, I want to be your friend. Is that friendship based on learning English? Fine. You want to learn something about American culture and society? Fine. You, you know, come to lunch with me. Come over to my place. Let's break bread with each other. And, um, you know, this is one thing that has really been a blessing for Miriam and I. I mean, the overwhelming majority of students that I study with are all foreign. And as much as is possible, we try to have them over our house, larger groups, smaller groups. It depends on what goes on. But I'll tell you one other thing. As soon as they meet my family, as soon as these guys meet my kids, they never forget that. Every time I meet them, how's Jacob? How's Lucas? I mean, you know, I mean, th this is the stuff that connects with them, that, that sticks with them. And, you know, God has given us our families also to his advantage in the work of his kingdom to build up some of these uh, relationships that I pray to the Lord are going to be for, for a lifetime. So a modest proposal that I want you to think about. Six points, six things that I would like you to consider. First is to realize 
that our American universities especially have a great heritage of Christian thought and that it is making a contribution to our society and our culture to revive that Christian heritage and those thoughts and to make it part of current discussions. Point two, to partially acknowledge our responsibility for the current crisis. I want to speak something about this clearly. Christians in America have blown it because th this has happened. And you know what has happened? I'll tell you why. When the first non-minister at Harvard University became a minister, you know what happened with a lot of the other professors? They said, well... Obviously, Harvard is going down to the, you know, going down the tubes now because they have a, their first professor that is not a minister. And heaven forbid that my garment should be soiled from being part of an institution where there is a non-minister as a professor. I resign. And many people left because they did not want to be associated with these other things. Well, you know what? As more and more anti-religious, anti-God ideas came in, there were many professors that had the same idea. Oh, I'm not going to be a part of this thing anymore. I mean, look what's going on, you know? And so largely they've totally pulled out of what, and left a vacuum, a total vacuum in the university system for all other people to try to fill. And in my way of thinking, this was a, a huge mistake that, that we weren't willing to get into the rough and tumble, you know, to try to disseminate the Christian view. Point three is, I, this, is, this is a little bit my belief, so I'm not going to put this over as being an authoritative thing, but I do not believe that the world system should be abandoned or that the university system should be abandoned. Our call is rather to saturate that system with the Christian perspective. That will be one of many, okay? Don't think that you're going to go in there and have the authoritative say. It will be one of many ideas that is presented in there, but who is willing to stand up and throw Christian ideas into the mix? as people ask questions and look for answers. To realize that in our society, it is the university that's the new battlefield. You know, what we talk about things that are going on in government, you know, the ideas that people have, the moral system and so on. Folks, it's not in government where this is fought, it's at the universities. The universities is where the seeds are planted for these things, and it will be there that this battle is ultimately gonna be won or lost. To categorically reject this notion of neutrality, and people say, well, you can't mix religion in what we're doing. That is a total farce, okay? It's just not true. I just want to bring up one, one thing Brother Ron illuminated to this last night, but I want to bring up just one point to think about what our Constitution says. When it, when it says that we are endowed with certain inalienable rights, among them being life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that's what the Founding Fathers believed, inalienable rights. Where do these inalienable rights come from? Inalienable means that it's superseding. It's rights that we have, that we believe we've been endowed with, has been given from some other place. Where do these inalienable rights come from? For people that say that religion plays no role, that you know, just the social norms that are ultimately developed, that society is going to be its own policeman for the thing, as society changes... The value systems of the society change. So where do the inalienable rights come from that supersede the society? They came from a belief system that superseded what was going on in society. That's where that ultimately came from, and that has to play a role in the thinking. 
to develop the sixth thing to develop an integrated Christian message. What that means is a message that makes sense, a message that is understandable, that is intelligible, and one that makes sense. Because Jesus Christ and the Christian message are the solutions, the only solutions to the problems that our world and the individual heart is ultimately faced with. And I want to close in the end with, with a, a, one of my favorite quotes from Albert Schweitzer, the noted, um, the noted humanitarian and doctrine philosopher, where he wrote that even in a world that is threatened with nuclear disaster, you can't forget that the individual has problems. That the individual has problems. And, you know, we tend to think that we're working on these larger problems of society, but each person that we come in contact with has personal problems that in their world are just as large as the problems of the whole. Could somebody turn, turn a line on back there, please? Um, that's all right now that I sort of wanted to confront you guys with. And, you know, we do have an opportunity for you to... Um, ask questions or tell me a little bit what you think about this. Say, Scott, you know what? Sounds good, but you know, I'm not really too convinced about this or for this this reason. Um, so ask away. I mean, you can comment. You don't have to ask. Somebody has something to say, throw it into the mix. We'll discuss it. Gospel blues. God has changed my life, you know? And it's not wrong because I was given the freedom to write my own songs. So you can be creative. It's the perfect time in your life and in the other college students' life. You'll hear of missionaries going to Turkey or other places. And where do they go? They go to the college students because that's the time.
Anything else? Thanks.